This summer was one of the most intense season of high temperature. That's Anwar Al-Adwan. He's a farmer in the Jordan Valley where temperatures are soaring. This affected many crops, especially vegetables grown in greenhouses, as well as some heat-sensitive crops. High temperatures in the Middle East and North Africa are not new. Across the Middle East, we've got high heat, a high of 42 in Doha. But in the last few years, temperatures have been increasing fast. The Iranian territory has been experiencing drought for several years. And those hot and dry conditions are continuing to fuel wildfires burning across the northern parts of Lebanon. And climate change experts are warning how this might affect the future of the population there. Temperatures in major cities across the Middle East could reach levels by the end of this century that human life can no longer be sustained. I'm Kevin Hurton, in for Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. We're back with a third of three episodes, Water, Fire, and Heat, examining climate change at its most basic levels. And today, we're focusing on the actual warming in global warming. We tend to talk a lot about floods and fires and hurricanes because, you know, they're immediate and they can be deadly. But for most people, most of the time, climate change boils down to the simple fact that it's just a lot hotter than it used to be. And for areas that were already hot before, That can be devastating. So, we wanted to know, when will it be too hot for the Middle East and North Africa? And how are the people there adapting? My name is Karim Al-Genzi, and I'm an urban sustainability consultant, also an associate fellow at Chatham House, and founder of an initiative called Carbone, which promotes sustainability in cities of the Middle East and North Africa. We start at its basic level about what happens when things get hot, and if there is such a thing as too hot for humanity. From a climate science perspective, when the climate gets warmer, there's too much energy in the system. So the biosphere that we currently reside in will simply have extra heat, and that extra heat will energize everything. So you'll get more evaporation, more rain, uh, more extreme rain, more increased heat waves, and also some places could end up with less rain rather than more rain and other the other way around. So we've talked a lot about how heat creates other crises and it, it causes all these other problems. But I wonder just in terms of the heat itself, are we seeing areas where it's just too hot to live? In some parts of the world, the temperature is too high. And as a result, you don't get the biocapacity because the plants die off. You don't get the thermal comfort that allows people to settle in those locations. And you don't get the water because the water also tends to evaporate off. But in general, what heat will do is it will make some places less habitable. What also might happen in some extreme circumstances, and specifically some studies have pointed to the Arabian or Persian Gulf as being a hotspot for that, is a change in what we describe as the wet bulb temperature. Wet bulb temperatures might not be a concept you're familiar with, but it's pretty important, and you'll probably be hearing more about it. It's a metric used to measure relative humidity. Dry bulb temperature is your standard temperature. It doesn't take humidity into consideration at all. And this is the temperature we normally hear in the weather forecast, for example. Wet bulb temperature, on the other hand, is a combined metric. It includes both 
temperature and relative humidity into that metric. If the wet bulb temperature increases beyond a certain limit, currently estimated at around 35 degrees wet bulb, the human body becomes less able to regulate its own internal core temperature. And the reason uh, this becomes difficult for humans to regulate their temperature at is because humans normally regulate their temperature through perspiring, by sweating. And, and that allows the human uh, body to lose temperature through that evaporation process of the sweat in, your, sweat in your skin. If the wet bulb temperature increases to a certain degree, one, it's too hot, and two, it's too muggy and too humid for that sweat to evaporate because the air is already saturated with humidity. And as a result, that sweat just sits there in your body. And not being able to evaporate means your internal core temperature would just rise and rise. So as a result, what we might see is under the worst case scenario, there might come days by the end of the century, so between 2017, 2100, where the temperature would reach that limit. And as a result, humans staying outside for say six hours or more than six hours might die as a result. Well, it's interesting. I, I hadn't thought about this until you mentioned it. There's a ton of places, especially in the Arab world or in the Middle East, that are basically unlivable now, that no one lives there. There's no water. It's in the middle of the Arabian desert. But what you're saying is that as the temperatures get warmer, the percentage of those areas might increase. So the areas where you can have human habitation will just diminish even further. Yes, the desert will grow, in other words. Remember, in the Middle East and North Africa, is dominated by the deserts. And it's only in those geographic quirks, if you like, where either being closer to the sea, being at a higher altitude, having a port, being next to a river, where the conditions allowed for human habitation and for the presence of moderate enough temperature, water, biocapacity to just sustain uh, human habitation in this otherwise desert region. So yes, the risk here is that climate change will make even those locations less prevalent across the region. You've written about parts of the Levant and Turkey as being the, the canary in the coal mine for this. Can you explain what you meant by that? Yes. In my article for Al Jazeera, I mentioned the Gaza Strip being a very unique place where um, much of the environmental conditions that allowed Gaza to exist are diminishing. And I argued that the environmental degradation of Gaza and the fact that it might become unlivable soon because of the lack of water is a canary in the coal mine for the rest of the Levant, which is experiencing the effects of climate change. The Levant is expected to experience a reduction of up to 25% reduction in precipitation, which will reduce all the rain-fed agriculture in the Levant and also in, in parts of Turkey as well. We must prepare for what might be the scenario in a few decades for the rest of the Levant as a result of climate change. So there's a couple of things that happen when the climate gets hotter in places like the Middle East. One is the lack of water. Another would be, what, air quality? Air quality in the summer months is already not great. Do you expect that to get even worse in the coming century? Yes. So some models suggest that there will increase in uh, sand and dust storms a result of climate change, and that will clearly disrupt the air quality. For example, what we have seen in the city of Ahavaz in, uh, in Khuzestan in Iran. The temperature reading hit 129.2 oh. degrees Thursday in Ahvaz, Iran. Precipitation had decreased by 60% from March to May as compared to the year before. 
the increased aridity of the soil has led to worsening air quality as a result of the fact that the soil is no longer bound by moisture and as a result it tends to worsen air quality which often in combination with pollution can dramatically affect human health. In some other parts of the MENA region, we could expect to see the same process where the air quality could drop, but we can also expect to see other impacts. We could also see a shortening of the agriculture season as a result of an increase in temperature, where crops that normally grow at a certain temperature or a certain season, that season might not necessarily be, might shift and also might get shorter uh, as a result of that. So we might see uh, a reduction in food security in some parts of the region that are, are productive in terms of agricultural productivity. But how are high temperatures affecting food production in the region today? We reached out to somebody who could tell us how he's dealing with the heat at the north end of the Dead Sea. My name is Anwar Al-Adwan. I live in the Jordan Valley. You heard from Anwar at the beginning of this episode. His family has been farming for decades. In my family, there are two generations of farmers. My father started farming since the late of 40s in the Jordan Valley, and he used to grow vegetables. The Jordan Valley was full of farms with different crops, especially vegetables, citrus fruits, and bananas. It was irrigated from the water collected in some dams, as well as water from some springs and private wells owned by some farmers. But over the years, water has become more and more scarce. In fact, Jordan became one of the most water-stressed countries in the world. Year after year, the agricultural areas increased and the rainy seasons were a few in Jordan in general. Anwar told us this summer has been really hot, even by Jordan standards, and the water reduction is noticeable. This year, in terms of water, is about 80 million cubic meters less than the last year. There is also a difficult situation due to the lack of water due to the shortage of rainy season this year. It's getting so bad, he's worried about being able to feed his family. I feel that my agricultural future, me and my family, and a lot of farmers in Jordan Valley, is in danger as a result of several factors, the most important of which is climate change. As agriculture means water, and if water is not available, there will be no agriculture, or at least agriculture will be for big farmers and some who have investments who can buy technology and use it in agriculture. There's so many layers to this story because in some ways the MENA region is on the short end of the stick of the entire idea of climate change. It's already one of the hottest and driest regions in, in the world. But also within the MENA region, there's also huge disparity in wealth, right? Countries like the Gulf countries that have huge amounts of money have ways to adapt. But other countries that might not have the same sort of oil wealth will be affected even quicker. So let's start with the, the countries that will struggle the most to adapt because of their economic circumstance and, and how dire the outlook looks for them. The countries that are likely to struggle most are in the eastern and southern Mediterranean. The Levant, as I pointed out uh, 
is likely to experience water shortages, which will add to the existing water shortages. And that would include Jordan, uh, Syria, and Israel-Palestine. In the northern Africa side, we're expecting even higher reduction in precipitation in, in Morocco, up to 40% according under the worst case scenarios. So these will likely to, to suffer, partly because their economies are dependent on agricultural sectors, but also because of the impact on food security. And, and this might also be a trigger that will cause people to make um, the decision to move away from their countries and to go to other places where climate has been of a lesser impact. That's when climate change makes the jump from an environmental issue to a global political issue with wide-ranging implications. I don't think any country in the world is going to be unimpacted by climate change. The challenge we find with assessing the impacts of climate change is that we do understand the basic physical impacts of climate change, but we don't understand fully the socioeconomic impacts. And there's also tertiary impacts like migration, like political unrest that could happen as a result of these socioeconomic changes, which are caused by climate change. The most obvious way to deal with extreme heat is air conditioning. It's changed the world. And it's interesting because air conditioning, it's like the solution to climate change is also making it worse. I know places like Doha or, or, or Abu Dhabi or Dubai, the air conditioning even extends to the outdoors in some cases. But there are a lot of places, I know there's parts of Iraq and certainly parts of Yemen, where there is not as much air conditioning and those temperatures become almost deadly as opposed to just a nuisance. People cannot live in indoors all the time. This spaceship Earth type of mentality that we will exist against all of the environment surrounding us is is very hard to have all the time. So people are trying to find solutions where they would improve the outdoor comfort to a certain degree, where where they can be outside even for a few months every year. So if they can extend the three or four months where the where the temperature is cool enough in the winter to become six months, that's great. Then they can at least spend more time outdoors and, and be less uh, confined to the indoor environment that is air conditioned. But as you put it, the issue of air conditioning here is, yes, it's a solution to make certain places habitable in existence against the environment type of condition. Yet at the same time, it worsens carbon emissions. I know that in uh, the Pearl in Doha, they have a thing called Qatar Cool, where they use water to power the air conditioning. Is that something we can expect more of in the future? In some locations, in coastal areas where there's access to seawater, there's the ability to draw water, and then the water would absorb the temperature within the room, and then that water is then rejected back into the sea. There's a limit to how much you can do this, because if you reject too much hot water into the sea, that could have an effect on marine environments. So this has to be tackled quite carefully. But in some locations where this is managed well, it can prove to be a much better solution than simply using a standalone air conditioning. But an increase in temperatures on the planet means oceans also warm up, generating an expansion of seawater, which causes a rise in water levels. And the MENA region is equally affected by it. So in the context of the Middle East and North Africa, sea level rise is expected to have serious impacts. If you consider that more than half of the region's coast is inhabited within 100 kilometers, you'd understand how an increase in sea level will affect both human settlements and also agricultural land surrounding that. As a matter of fact, one meter of sea level rise is expected to affect more than 40,000 square kilometers of territory across the region, and it could affect up to 37 million people. The areas most likely to be affected are the low-lying areas. So these would be the Nile Delta, which is expected to see up to a third of agricultural land affected by 
either by inundation or by infiltration of the seawater into the agricultural land and as a result the loss of this agricultural land. The second area that is likely to uh, be affected is the south of Iraq, which is a very large area of land in the Shat al-Arab region to the south. The other area that also might be affected is the low-lying coastlands of the Arabian Gulf or the Persian Gulf. So places like Abu Dhabi, Doha, Dubai and Manama are likely to be affected. As a matter of fact, Bahrain is often referred to as one of the low-lying vulnerable islands highly expected to be affected by climate change. I'm wondering what your best case scenario is for this region and kind of what your wake up sweating in the middle of the night scenario is for this region. The best case scenario for the region is a transformation away from um, rentier economies and a transformation towards a greener economy that is powered by renewable energy and green hydrogen and human settlements that are adapted to an increase in temperature that can deal with reduced rainfall and increased aridity. The worst case scenario is runaway climate change that is uncontrolled, that would make large swathes of the region uninhabitable, that would lead to loss of livelihoods, political unrest, potentially resource conflicts, and large-scale migration away from the region. In response to climate, there are two overall approaches mitigation and adaptation. I asked Kareem how the MENA region is implementing them. On the mitigation side, there are two positive stories on energy transition towards renewables and away from fossil fuels. And these are Turkey and and Morocco. And both of them have their own drivers and have their own uh, mechanisms of transitioning away from fossil fuels. But both of them have done reasonably well. Morocco tries to become 52% dependent on renewables by 2030, and they have been highly commended by the global community as being at the forefront of climate action. Turkey, on the other hand, have already achieved more than 50% of their energy, of their electricity from renewable energy sources, albeit partially dependent still on hydropower, which is again a clean power source, but the growth of solar and wind and geothermal in Turkey has also been exceptional over the last few years. There are other promising transitions happening in Egypt, in Jordan, in the United Arab Emirates, moving in the same direction as well. And we've heard earlier uh, this year that Saudi Arabia plans to transition to 50% renewables by 2030. And that's quite a steep change from 0.3% today to 50% in nine years. Do you ever think about the big picture historical story of finding oil in the Middle East? Some of these countries were blessed with wealth beyond their wildest imaginations and this gift of of this energy. But then we find out like 100 years later that the energy that you have might make your countries almost uninhabitable by the end of the century. It's almost like a Faustian bargain that you didn't realize you were entering into. And I wonder what a post-fossil fuel Middle East can look like. I can't even really picture it. I struggle with that. In the context of any specific region, and that could be the American South, it could be the Middle East oil and gas producers, could be the Russian gas producers, all of these countries find it very hard for them to transition away and lose a significant part of their wealth. But in recent years, we have noticed that most of these have figured out that it's actually in their interest to transition away. But they can only do that transition using the wealth that they have. So they would like to extract the wealth from these resources 
these harmful resources causing climate change to become a catalyst for a transition away from fossil fuels. And so they're unable to cut their income sources until they've managed to do that transition, which is, I find, that is to be the dilemma that many of these countries find themselves in. Yeah, it's like a Greek tragedy. The source of your wealth is the source of your own destruction. It's really heavy stuff. Yeah. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Ney Alvarez with Ruby Zaman, Amy Walters, Nagin Oliai, Dina Kisbe, Priyanka Tilve, Alexandra Locke, and me, Kevin Hurton. Alex Roldan was the sound designer. Aya Almi Lake is our engagement producer. Tom Fenton is our story editor. And Stacey Samuel is The Take's executive producer. Malika Bilal will be back this Friday.